Here's to the finest crew in Starfleet. Engage. Welcome to The Greatest Generation, Deep Space Nine. It's a Star Trek podcast by a couple of guys who are a little bit embarrassed to have a Star Trek podcast. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. How you doing today, Adam? Great. So great. <laughs> the best. Yeah, this is, uh, this is, uh, we are, we are really like in the thick of your, of your move stress, I think. I'm almost positive it's not going to get any worse than this. Like, I think I've reached the bottom of, of what's going on. And uh, yeah. from here on out, it's just climbing out into the light. Oh, really? So you think, you think you've hit, hit the nadir, and now you'll just be clawing your way back up? I mean, the thing that happens to most people who talk the way I just did is that uh, they find a Fam- sub Famous last words. <laughs> they find a, a sub-nadir, a nadir on top of that nadir. Mm. Or below it, I guess, in in this configuration, and then, yeah. and then it gets even worse. Mm, good crossword puzzle word, Nadir. Mo- moving's hard. Yeah, I, I want to cheer you up. This isn't Star Trek Bummercast. That's not what no. this is. It's not what this is for us or anyone else. Adam, Adam, I have an idea of something to cheer you up. All right, lay it on me. A, a jazz horse update. Tell me you love jazz. Horse, earth horse. Okay, boys, saddle up. You're as handy with a shooting iron as you are with a woman's heart. I'm beginning to see the appeal of this program. I suggest you find a new line of work. It's okay, girl. Just a scratch. This is really surprising to me. I haven't played Jazz Horse for many months, so I'm excited to hear uh, what you're about to tell me. I'm guessing... Uh, it will be an, another month or two at the earliest they all have time to play Jazz Horse. Mm. Uh, and this is a bit of an unusual Jazz Horse update because it's a it's a letter bag Jazz Horse update. Okay. Uh, and uh, I have to change some some details for uh, for this because I was I was asked to. But uh, a redacted Jazz Horse update is what this yeah. is. Okay. I'm going to read this letter, and, uh, you know, some details change to protect the innocent. Hello, I was the lead animator for the horse on Jazz Horse at Rockstar North. Sorry, I know you get a lot of spam, so I was hoping that weird first line was enough to get your attention. I've been so happy listening to you guys chatting about Jazz Horse a while back. I've been listening to you guys since the famous article, and the pod was a near constant soundtrack while I was animating and implementing the horse for Jazz Horse. Jesus, I worked on that game for years, and this is all I can ever call it now. (laughs) I love that you enjoyed the game, and I really, really enjoy your pod. I think it's super cool that we like each other's stuff. The DNA of the greatest generation is forever baked into the hefty haunches of those horses. Whether it's a particularly jaunty gait from the brilliant mood you guys put me in to a misplaced hoof from laughing so much my mouse slipped across my desk. All printed in ones and zeros on tens of millions of Blu-ray discs forever. Not even the pocket of Big Rod can undo that. Uh, So yeah, the the reason uh, the person that sent this wanted me to like withhold their name and like not be super specific (laughs) was that uh, they were saying that the the fans of Rockstar Games like hack people's emails accounts and LinkedIn's and 
try and find where they live because they want to go meet them and shit. That's scary. <laughs> I know. Like, I was thinking about that today. Like, there's have been times in this project where I've been like, you know, like, we have a lot of people that listen to the show, and I'm really grateful for that. But I wish we had, like, like a real needle-pegging amount of passion in our listeners. And I, uh, and this is an object lesson in, in why you don't want a needle-pegging amount of passion. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad most of the viewers of Greatest Gen are like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> that's that's kept us safe for years. That's a great letter, and wow, uh, respect Nux to that person, the creator of the Jazz Horse. That's amazing. He made all the horses. Yeah, I'm. I mean, like this is. He made genuine. This is just as exciting as when we found out that a lot of people that listen to the Greatest Discovery work on Star Trek Discovery. Can he resurrect genuine for me? Oh, snap. <laughs> I don't know, because... You know what? That's one reason I would want to stalk this guy, figure out where he lives. Yeah, yeah. Drive on you his miss- doorstep. But but what about uh, what about that horse over there? Yeah, yeah. I, I got a new horse now. Yeah. That's just as good as genuine. It's true. <laughs> I, God, I haven't played in so long. I do miss it. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna I, make the time for an hour of that next week. I think yeah, I could man. call that mental health time. I think I think you deserve my prescription. As a matter of fact, <laughs> six hours. Wow, that that's a size of pill that needs to be taken rectally. Yeah, that's, that's a, a that's, that's a, a horse pill. Dose. Yeah, <laughs> you need it, man. Wow, when was the last time you played? Are you still in it? I think I haven't played so far in. 2020, but I have been meaning to get back on it, and uh, as of this recording, my wife's going out of town over the weekend, and... Well, there you go. Gonna, That's I, useful. I, you know, I I haven't, like, had that much chill time lately, so I, I think I'm going to carve it out as well. You know, what we should do is pour these prescriptions into this brandy snifter, and, uh, mm. and we each take six hours of Jazz Horse, and uh, call each other in the morning. That sounds great. <laughs> That's just what Dr. Jazz Horse ordered. Yeah. I wonder if, uh, should there be a Jazz Horse 3, the Jazz yeah. Horsening, <laughs> even if this exists in, in the game as it is right now, I mean, I wonder if there are any greatest gen Easter eggs to be found. I mean, this person did design the Jazz Horse. I think that the way the horse's butt moves is the Easter egg. That's That's what this person is saying. Yeah, it is hypnotic. Nodding, nodding, nodding. Isn't it? Yeah, it, it occurred to me uh, today. I was driving around and I and I was thinking about how, like, my f- earliest experience of driving around LA was uh, via the Grand Theft Auto game that was yeah. set in like a fictional version of LA. Yeah. And I, if if they made that game today, how many like scooters and micro mobility vehicles would be in it? <laughs> You know, the first time you get air rounding Wilshire too fast in real life, it really makes you think about all the times you did it in GTA. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyways, uh, I wanted to say uh, thanks to that friend of DeSoto who has uh, has baked our silly show into that great, great video game. Yeah, we should send them a Jazz Horse shirt or something. That'd be cool. Yeah. Wow, uh, mutual respect from a real-life creator to you and me, Ben. Uh, Do you want to get into the episode we came to review today, Adam? 
Yeah, sure enough, our Marin has washed ashore the episode of today. Uh, it's season six, episode two. It's called Rocks and Shoals. Do you realize how incredible this is? No, of course you don't. We begin with no last time here, Ben. It is, uh, no. we just get a smash to Cisco's log. You just have to remember what happened last time. I like it. I like that kind of respect for the viewer. Mm-hmm. It's assuming that you know what's happening. Also, it's, assuming it's a bigger assumption than like current Trek is doing, right? Like yeah. basically every episode of current Trek has has a last time on. I kind of love the attitude of we don't care if you know or not. <laughs> this is what we're doing. I mean, thinking about that, like I remember in the what we left behind documentary they talked a lot about in different markets because mm-hmm. it was just a syndicated show like mm-hmm. they had almost no control over like when the show would be aired and and the and the stations that had it would move its time slot all the time and without warning so it's not like a safe assumption that everybody knows what happened last time but this this is a self a, a very self-contained story that is also within the context of a larger story. So I think it works. We don't get the scene of Cisco trying to work the captain's log machine on the tick that I kind of <laughs> wish we got. <laughs> we, we just, we skip to the part where he makes it work and that's fun. Power has not been totally restored and this tick is limping uh, and they don't like their chances of getting out of uh, I guess I guess technically it's Dominion space, Cardassian slash Dominion space. Right. And uh, and everybody is real frustrated with this. It's a, a lot of damn this, damn that. And uh, as he wraps up his captain's log, Cisco walks onto the bridge and puts on his heads up display. And this is, I think, the first time we've gotten the POV of somebody wearing one of these. And I thought this was really cool. I wonder what happens after prolonged exposure. Because it's like, it's showing that that little screen is giving him an augmented reality view, like uh, 360 degrees in three dimensions of the exterior of the ship. Like he can turn his head and see what's out there and what it's doing. It's as cool as it looks difficult, though. Yeah. I mean, it looks difficult, but this is like, when did this episode come out? Like 1997? Like, yeah. this is, that is an idea that is current bleeding edge technology stuff. Yeah, it's, it's VR bridge crew technology, as in totally. the video game. Right. And, uh, and I thought that it was really neat to, uh, to see Star Trek and in this era was still inventing technologies that are are things that people like you know were inspired enough by to go and figure out how to make this era of star trek though leans fairly heavily on the shows and movies that came before in one very crucial way the idea of (laughs) girders representing great danger yeah just the just the premise of hiding in a nebula and a girder coming out of the ceiling is direct of con it's a lot of fun and it's not just one girder that falls on top of dax like it is a pile yeah this is uh one of the most rugged slow motion attempted girder murder (laughs) scenes we've ever gotten and they're getting shot at by other jemhadar ticks that i guess know that they are a an interloper and yeah they uh they fly into this nebula to try and escape them 
uh, and we uh, find out from Dr. Bashir that the ankylosaur inside Dax may have been injured in this bridge girder collapse scene. It's pretty heady stuff. It's nuts that two support beams that are this big and this important looking can fall out of the ceiling and the ship stays pretty much intact. I mean, what are they even doing there to begin with? What are they holding up? Now when you're making a gem tick, <laughs> it's important to put up a number of non-load-bearing beams across your bridge. <laughs> We're putting up enough beams that we'll pass any inspection no matter what load is theoretically putting on the deck above. But that means we're bringing in dozens of extra beams that wouldn't necessarily be needed in a normal Starship environment. When this tick was first built, the floor plan was very closed off. (laughs) What you can see here is the kitchen breezily leading into the dinner table (laughs) and into the living room behind that. Mothers love this because they can watch their kids while they work the kitchen. And we're definitely not perpetuating patriarchal... (laughs) situations by building kitchens like this at all. One of the very last shots of this sequence is the tick kind of spinning toward an uncharted planet below. This comes as a surprise because the nebula that they've ducked out for uh, has been uncharted. So anything could be in there. Even this planet they're about to crash on. Yeah, it looks like a very like Civilization four yeah. planet. Yeah. <laughs> like like you set it to like inland waterways setting and then like scale the planet size up to big. God, my wife and I have been playing hours and hours of Civ on the iPad lately. Really? Yeah. The the before bedtime that usually could be used for anything else is now just Civ time. I like it. My wife famously declared to me that she estimates she will play less than 30 minutes of video games from now till she dies. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, here's the thing, man. She does the New York Times crossword puzzle app. Does that count? Oh, I think it counts. So she's she's a fucking liar. We get after the theme a passage of time. We've got two Jem'Hadar discussing their circumstances on this on this ridge overlooking the beach. Spaceballs? Oh shit! There goes the planet. And this yeah. is a real interesting profile shot comp, and you can yeah. tell you're looking at something weird. I mean, anytime everything in a frame is in focus, odds are that's going to be a comp. And so in this scene, in the profile view, we've got the territory behind and both of the Jem'Hadar. Uh, you, you can try to sell this through lighting, and it's something that they attempt to do here. But for some of these angles, it doesn't quite hang together believably. Yeah, they're definitely not getting these guys in a position where they're like overlapping with the water, really. Mm-hmm. So that feels like a comp, but it also could just be that it's really bright out there. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. And, and we know about like shooting in bright light, you're going to get... Uh, like, your depth of field is going to be such that everything's going to be in focus if you get a lot of light. Unless you really restrict filter. the amount of light getting into the into the lens with a filter. But, like, that can look a little bit strange mm-hmm. to our eyes because we're so used to looking at things that are shot indoors. Yeah. So, like, often when you're shooting outside, you do use filters to get shallow depth of field just because it, like, looks really weird when everything is tack sharp. Yeah. And this is an example of that. 
So uh, I don't think that they really establish why these Jem'Hadar are on the planet. You were right to question him. If he had not ordered us into the nebula two days ago, we would not have crashed. It was not my place. And yet this is a group of Jem'Hadar that are uh, stranded here, and uh, and they're talking about uh, what a bad situation they're in because their first and second bought it. Uh, the third is... Uh, not feeling great about getting the big promotion that he would seem to be due because he sort of spoke up against whatever plan got them into this problem. Dear me. I like that this is how this story is constructed from the beginning. This scene kind of represents season six so far. If you don't know what's happening, you'll figure it out eventually. So then we get uh, Nog pulling himself up onto the shore like a shipwreck victim in a nautical adventure sent during the Napoleonic War and uh, and then everybody's like hauling themselves up on the shore and we actually see the ticks sinking in the surf in the background I, I like the wide territorial shot of the sinking tick yeah and I also like that they have like a raft with a bunch of provisions stacked on it like they had enough time before the tick sank to actually like do something about it it's unclear if people died in this crash yeah no one mentions it we got a couple extras here too as a part of this crew on the planet and they reveal themselves over time but i think that's interesting yeah that either they have a skeleton crew or they don't mention the many dead that are locked inside the tick underwater yeah what we've got is dax o'brien I am Chief Miles Edward O'Brien. This is fucking spectacular. Garrick, Cisco, Nog, and I think two extras. So it's a pretty small crew. O'Brien's real pissed about messing up his pants. So I guess uh, that makes me think nobody died. But I guess that's not a sure shot. (laughs) O'Brien has just got to be glad he didn't blow out his crotch. He's lucky no one can see his haggis. At this point, <laughs> big laughs all around, though. We cut to Deep Space Nine, where Kira uh, gets up and starts her day, and this is just kind of a slice of life. What is what does a morning for Kira look like? Sequence. Um, she, uh, you know, heads to ops, and uh, and what this is showing us is that she heads to ops, and all of her coworkers are. Cardassians and Jem'Hadar. The epiphany I had during this scene was, Kira works from home. So does everyone else on the station. Yeah, that's true. I mean, her commute is just taking a lift. I don't know why she has to get up at 5 a.m. then. That's first shift right there in a lot of places. Maybe she hits the gym. Maybe she's one of those people that, like, goes to goes to Bajoran Temple every morning before work. She should propose a four-shift rotation. What's wrong with that? Gives the Jim Hadar more time to hit that white? Yeah, I, it occurred to me that if you wanted to start a resistance on Deep Space Nine, what you would do is find a way to adulterate the white. Yeah, but it's kept in that locked case. How do you get yeah. into that case? Hmm. That's the question. Maybe just shake the case up, because one, one thing that's revealed about these cases is that they don't, they don't have a lot of, like, foam padding on the inside. Is the case beam-proof? It seems like you could replace the vials with other vials. <laughs> just through, replace through, them through sight with to vials sight transport. of skim milk. Yeah. Yeah, and then it just curdles in the tube. Oh, gross. That would be very unpleasant, I bet. Yeah. Kira warm seats it with an outgoing crew person. This also made me think of the way submariners do it. I wouldn't want to yeah. sit down on a warm seat. The only seat... Yuck. 
I like to be warm as the uh, as the toilet seat of my bidet. <laughs> it's the only circumstance where where that's something I can get with. Yeah, you don't want to be in a seat where a Cardassian's been blasting his butt. And that's it for this scene. Uh, we're, yeah. we're back on the planet surface where uh, we meet a new Vorda. Ben, his name is Kevin, not Kevin. He will tell you, and everyone else who asks. Wait, wait. <laughs> he doesn't have the same name as me, does he? <laughs> If so, I might have to take issue with all Vorda everywhere. There was a time when I thought about exterminating every Kevin besides myself. <laughs> Would have made things a lot easier. It's a fairly common name, so if I went to a restaurant with Rashan and they called our table, it occasionally caused minor confusion, and I just don't like awkward situations. I got kind of a Larry David approach to life. <laughs> You wouldn't believe how awkward my pitch was to HBO for Curb My Genocide. <laughs> Kevin is struggling with his injuries. Uh, it's 10 days from any possible rescue, and he's kind of circling the drain. Uh, the way one of his eyes is circling one of his eye sockets. He's lazy <laughs> eye injured, Ben. He's in a bad way. He's got really piercing eyes, too. One thing I read about the circumstances of this shoot was that it was extremely hot again. Like, remember that episode where they uh, they were in that flipped over tick on the planet service and it was like yeah. 120 degrees? Same circumstance here. And what I read was that the makeup was so runny, uh, it made everyone's eyes really irritated and red. I wonder uh. if this guy's contact slipped out of square and that's why he's looking the way he does or it's just a way to visually tell the story that that he's in really bad shape i don't know i don't know uh he's got really piercing blue eyes in his headshot on imdb so i i wondered if these are contacts or that's just what he his eyes actually look like i mean he's not too injured to distribute the white because uh it's the right time for the white time And he's the only one there to do it. Did these Jemadara costumes look a little crappier than normal to you? Uh, that was not something that I noticed, but I mean, I also was just willing to accept their rumpledness due to their circumstances. Hmm. Yeah, this is another Michael Vihar uh, yeah. directed episode, so. Harder and Viharder is what we know <laughs> about him, right? Yeah. Enjoy the heat. <laughs> Yeah, you do not want a director of that uh, reported reputation. On the hot shoot? Yeah, on the hot shoot. He's not a hot shoot director, if you can help it. Yeah. So, Kevin gives them one vial of white for all of the Jem'Hadar present. Only one? Keep your place. Which is uh, a major bummer to these guys. And he explains it away as, you know, we, we've got a while to be here, so I'm going to ration it. And that's that. The, the Jem'Hadar don't get to... Second guess decisions made by their Vorta. We cut to another cave here, and I mean, Star this, Trek caves got a lot of work in this episode. This is challenging, I think, if you're putting together an episode like this to make the same Star Trek cave look different shot to shot. Right. Because we cut to the cave where our star fleets are located, and uh, Bashir has changed into kind of a cut off champion short sleeve sweatshirt look. <laughs> <laughs> like that teal color that was so popular in the late 90s. That's what he's rocking. Yeah. They're heating up a big rock in the middle of the chamber so that they can flash dry their Starfleet uniforms and everybody's like in their underpants putting their clothes back on. It's great. <laughs> in the opening of this scene. 
Dax is really in a bad way, and by that I mean she's in pain. <laughs> and uh, Cisco has to do that thing out in the field where he promises he's going to get her out of there, but he really has no information to confirm whether or not that's possible. It's kind of a hollow promise right now. They do a runner in this episode, and the bit is that he is Captain Hospitality, and this is a hotel. Like, he comes up to her with, Madam, your pants are ready. Uh-huh. And there's all the, there, there is a running premise that they keep coming back to that Dax is staying in Hotel Crashland Planet. And I thought that that was really fun. I thought that was fun writing. All I do is <laughs> no matter what. Terry Farrell is famously photosensitive. And so if you're ever going to do an episode outside, uh, she has to be protected in a certain way, and the way that she was protected in this episode is that she gets to take all of her scenes inside. I should tell people I'm photosensitive. <laughs> I hate being outside. I hate having my photo taken, so is that a <laughs> sort of photosensitivity? <laughs> I'm going to be staring at this cave ceiling for the rest of my stay. There's kind of parallel circumstances, right? Like, both marooned groups have one desperately injured person yeah. The first mission we see is Nog and Garrick are dispatched to take a scan of their of their environment and uh I like this scene a lot. It was the uh it was a scene that called back what happened in Empachnor. Mm-hmm. Which uh you know, like it's it's easy to forget that that was 4 episodes ago for us, but it's like it's like distant memory for these characters and it would be if you're watching this at the time of its release. And uh, Nog is expressing that he will never trust Garrick again. And Garrick uh, is uh, quite encouraged by this development. (laughs) It's more than fair of Nog, and it's respected by Garrick. Yeah, I really liked it. You know, we don't get to enjoy this moment for too long because they pretty quickly get grabbed by some some Jem'Hadar that come uh, come out of cloak and and take them to see the Vorta. And... uh, Nog is trying to do that military prison thing where he just gives, like, the Geneva Convention mm-hmm. required amount of information and no more. And Garrick is like, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> what he needs to do is be a better improviser than he is in this scene because Garrick goes right into uh, doing a show. My name is Kamar, and I'm a member of the Cardassian Intelligence Bureau. And Nog cannot keep up. I thought that uh, I thought that Garrick could have kept this going, though. Like, I thought so too. There's a moment where the Vorda, you know, asks him what the hell is Starfleet Com badges for if he's in this Cardassian intelligence agency, and he gave up. I feel yeah. like you could keep lying. Keep lying, I, I, Garrick. I had three ideas about directions you could take that. Oh, yeah, you know. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not half the liar that Garrick is. Yeah, like, I'm in such deep cover, of course I'm going to wear their comm badge. How else am I supposed to talk to these people? I'm like Jason Bourne. I've got, like, a Swiss bank account with 25 different comm badges from 25 different societies in it. This is his passport. You're exactly right. Uh, but what is clear here is that Keevan wants access to the doctor that he knows to be in that other Star Trek cave. And, and now so, he has some leverage for that. Yeah. Uh, what Keevan does is he tasks uh, his, what is it, his third? Yeah, his the, uh, third. The first and the second have been killed, and so all Jem'Hadar tasks fall on the third. And he's a guy who is uncomfortable with his field promotion in a number of areas. In this case, he's told he needs to go scout the other landing party, but do not 
engage them. He's only supposed to take pictures. <laughs> uh, this is uh, Rometaclan, is yep. the character's name, played by Phil Morris, who's, uh, who we've also seen on Deep Space Nine playing Thopak, the Klingon that runs around with Grilka. Yep, and... Um, is he also on Deep Space Nine as somebody else? He was also in Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Oh, really? He's the cadet that wants the sheet cake party back Fuck. at the station. A hero's welcome, son. Is that what you like? I think it's a little... Fuck. This is the... Uh, we had, like, Ometaclon a couple mm-hmm. couple episodes ago, and now we've got Ramataclon. Mm-hmm. What is this show doing Hiring black actors and making them play characters with clan in their name. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that, Ben. <laughs> that was not part of the Deep Space Nine documentary. Uh, mostly softball questions yeah. in that doc. When no Ira one... Stephen Bear was uh, was working with the editor, he didn't uh, he didn't put that up on the screen. Yeah, what they needed. Uh in that doc was maybe some more harder hitting questions. One person uh, who has really leaned into the asking of such questions is Jake, who is sitting in on a meeting on DS9 with Odo and Kira. He's still doing his journalism, even though he knows no one will ever read or listen to his work. It's kind of like us doing a Star Trek podcast, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) Toiling in anonymity. Yeah, he does kind of gotcha style journalism because he's he's really putting tough questions to both Kira and Odo about letting the Jem'Hadar run the show the way they are. Like, does Odo's participating in the ruling council on the station give legitimacy to the occupation? Uh, is is Kira has Kira become like the handmaiden of the second occupation of Bajor? Uh, these are extremely provocative questions, and then like starts dropping in stuff that he knows that they don't, which which uh, has got to be particularly embarrassing for Odo when when Jake asks like, "Are you guys going to the protest tomorrow?" And Odo's like, "Duh." The scene represents a kind of dimensionality I didn't really appreciate until the end of the episode, because at the time I felt a lot like you. What the hell are you doing, Jake? These are your friends. Why are you challenging them on your bullshit that doesn't even matter? But what it's really doing, because you and I love Kira and Odo, we're not accepting of Jake's questions, and it feels aggressive and 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 cruel, but what it's actually doing is making us see the truth. Yeah, and it's he's making calling Kira, them on their bullshit. And it's making Kira and Odo do that as well. And I, I really appreciated this scene later. At the time, I felt the way you did, though. I didn't have a lot of respect for what Jake was doing at the time. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, Jake is coming from a position of never having been in this kind of danger before, so maybe doesn't appreciate mm-hmm. the risk of pushing these buttons, but I think it's good that he's pushing these buttons. And, you know, even though there isn't a free press on the station, like, kind of cosplaying it actually has, like, positive outcomes in the long run. Yeah. What he asks about toward the end of their interview is that there's going to be a demonstration. This is a Bajoran demonstration headed up by Vedic Yassim. And the expectation is that Kira and Odo might have a position here. But 
all it is at the moment is kind of a security threat. Odo yeah. and Kira view this as just another opportunity for a crackdown to occur as a result. Which they are doing because they believe it's the best way to keep people safe and unkilled in this. Right. What they view to be temporary occupation of the station. Yeah. Back in the Dax cave, uh, a security random that we will know as Paul Gordon reports that Garrick and Nog may be lost. He can't find them. He's a, he's a good Gordon, but he's no Jay Gordon. No. I wonder if he's Jay Gordon's dad. No, I'm afraid not. He's the right age to be Jay Gordon's dad. You know, I was taking a look at the soil out here. It's like we could grow <laughs> some pretty messed up radishes if we if we had to stay a while, you know? This dirt is weird. <laughs> We cut to the search party. Uh, like, I love how bang, bang the sequence is. Like, we know Garrick and Nog may be lost. We cut directly to the search party for them. And we get introduced to another security officer, Ben. I'm really liking the cut of Lisa Neely's jib and her red bun taking charge. Captain, there's a group of life forms up in the cliffs. Everyone's rocking deep Vs in this scene. It's hot. You gotta unzip that jacket. They're walking across this kind of like the bottom of a quarry where it's like slightly filled in with water in places Mm -hmm. and there's steep cliffs on all the sides and they're like oh yeah this is like a perfect place to get ambushed by gem hadar these gems uh are are real strung out on their extremely low you know they're like micro dosing the white at this point yeah and it's just not what their systems are used to so they've got those itchy trigger fingers and one of them starts licking shots even though like the premise of this, like the order that the Vorta gave was go make contact with Starfleet and like propose this prisoner exchange idea. And instead it turns into a firefight where the Federations are pinned down uh, and, you know, the Gemidar have the high ground. It's like, it's a real bad situation. I thought this was a well shot, well composed action sequence. The practical explosions look good. Yeah. And it really hung together nicely. Yeah. And it's also like a confusing action sequence for the Federations because when uh, Remeticlon comes back, uh, he's like, who who fired? Like, what? Like, what? Like, you guys have to stop. We need to withdraw. He finds out that the guy that blew it um, has uh, lost his ability to cloak himself. So that guy's going to have to provide suppressing fire while they while they run away. And soon enough, the the firefight kind of subsides, and uh, and they get back to the cave. I mean, was it your understanding that this is sort of like running a camera and a monitor off of one battery? That the white both sustains the gem Hadar and gives them the ability to do the cloak? I don't know. I interpreted it as he'd taken some incoming fire or something. Oh, oh okay. But like, I don't know. It's like that seems like a biological. Capability they have, right? Yeah, that's kind of what I It's not a machine. Yeah, a little unclear. They have like a another organ that allows them to do that. Well, the reason I I brought it up is that like they sort of look around at each other. Like Remeticlon is like, all right, well you you have the ability to shroud, right? And the other guy's like, no, me neither. But he wasn't shot, Hmm. so it's got to be a a biological thing. Wow, it's white related. Yeah. 
It's white privilege. It's white power is what it is. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, I just got an email where uh, we've been asked to leave the Maximum Fun Network and uh, take our show off of Apple Podcasts. You know what? In the context of this scene, that joke fucking plays. And you know it. That joke plays. (laughs) We can't call the episode white power, though. Okay. That... (laughs) I will agree with you on that on that fact for sure. <laughs> I will instead call the episode we can't call the episode white power. <laughs> I was in a dentist's office recently and they had an advertisement for a tooth whitening system and the slogan was the power of white. When wow. it was just a white guy in a suit with a big grin. Come on, guys. How the fuck does a marketing agency release a poster of that kind? We gotta get some diversity up in that marketing agency, Ben. How the fuck does a podcast put a joke in of that kind? <laughs> <laughs> Got past the goalie. <laughs> Anyway, the scene sets into motion the idea of how much the Jem'Hadar really depend on chain of command. And when that chain of command comes apart, uh, the sorts of consequences that occur. This is not a good scene up on the cliffside. And a big part of it is the chain of command reason. When they get back to the cave, the Vorda is really pissed and wants to personally punish whoever started licking shots in the atmosphere first. And I thought this was a a great moment for Rometoclon, because he's like, I may not be first, but I am the unit leader. You may discipline me. Because in the very last scene, he saw what happens when Chain of Command falls apart. He is standing firm here. And it's a great scene. It makes you respect Rometoclon, and it makes you sort of dislike Keevan. Yeah. Keevan Keevan really pushes this issue and Rometoclon stands firm in a way that I thought was really cool. Yeah. He dismisses his men and uh and Keevan is like, hey man, respect Nux. That was that was pretty solid. You're a lot strengthier than I thought you were. Anyways, and I, I need you to actually go do this now. Yeah. I have a new task for you. Back on DS9 we finally meet the aforementioned Vedic Yasim. She's an older lady She's having a conversation with Kira about the occupation, and Vedic Yassim sort of reminds Kira of the hardliner she used to be, W slash R slash T occupation. She's ready to protest and make a stink of this thing, and Kira is unable to convince her that laying back in the cut is a viable strategy. Yeah. The idea of this scene is that Kira has gotten... In, in her duties, you know, which are what the Bajoran government and Cisco asked her to do, she's gotten willing to tolerate a lot of evil. Look, this is us against them. What are you talking about? Come on. And that's pretty in, uh, a pretty intense truth that, sh- that Kira really rejects in this, in this moment. You just don't understand. Like Vedic Yassim has to leave it with, uh, like you're gonna you're gonna see how tolerant of evil you've gotten tomorrow at the protest, but uh, obviously, like you're too blind for it right now. Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about now, but you will when it's over. Yeah, the scene ends with them at Bajaggerheads. <laughs> Vedic Yassim was in Predator Two. What? I'm trying to find. What character she played? 
Not many people enjoy Predator 2 as much as the first, that's for sure. Predator 2 is great! I like Predator 2, I'm not saying I don't. Predator 2 posits a, an L.A. that is a hysterical level of war zone. <laughs> Come and get it! The is ready! It's like, okay, the first one was set in the jungle, but what if the second one was set in the urban jungle? <laughs> and what if the urban jungle was, like, way crazier than Escape from New York? I love it. <laughs> it's a hat on a hat, but it's a lot of fun. Very cokey feeling movie to me. It may be the cokiest movie that's ever been produced. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Like, it it makes Predator 1 look not that cokey, which is astonishing. It makes the first Predator look downright jazzy in comparison. <laughs> Back at the Dax cave, Remeticlon arrives with his message. Remeticlon has a a very interesting relationship with the concept of loyalty because he believes super hard in it, but he arrives with this message and he's very honest about like, this would not be my message if it was me, but this is the message. Would you make a deal like that? No. Then why should I? You shouldn't. Cisco kind of does that. Uh, you know, you wouldn't have to do that if I was your man kind of thing yeah. <laughs> that you see sometimes socially like he's trying to get in there he's trying yeah. to get in between them he's trying to break up a happy home Remeticlon is about following the letter and not the spirit of the law yeah. and Cisco is all about that letter I love how much in agreement they are about the shitty deal that's been proposed yeah it's great it's a, it's a shitty deal you shouldn't take it yeah but uh, but also Remeticlon is able to give some reassurances which are that his orders are to release Cisco and the doctor once they do the thing that they uh that the that the Vorta wants them to do mm -hmm. and that is something that I would be quite hesitant to agree to because there's nothing stopping the Vorta from changing his mind and there's no like like Cisco has every reason to believe that Remeticlon will follow whatever the Vorta says at such time as he changes his mind. There's never been an example of a trustworthy Vorta either, so it really feels like Cisco's going out on a limb here. Yeah, but uh, that's the kind of man Cisco is, right? He it is extends exactly. trust to a fault. Yep. Yeah. Cisco twists the conversational knife here a little bit about him being the third in a really fun way and about having to answer to the Vorta at all. He even yeah. refers to the first time he saw Wayun getting killed. That's great. Yeah. yeah. We're we're self-referential to so many other episodes this time around. It's it feels like a totally different show. Yeah. This is uh this this uses the tapestry that they've woven for five seasons to the fullest effect. Yeah. You know, Cisco's like, hey, you know, like it's not totally out of uh it's it's not totally unusual for Jem Hadars to kill bad Vordas, so uh, you know just think about that. <laughs> and Romaticlot is like, that is not the kind of Jem Hadar I am, man. Cisco's like, you're not married. You can just break up. <laughs> then you could be happy. You don't have kids or anything. You can walk away right now. I would make you so much happier. <laughs> That Vorta doesn't appreciate you the way I do. That Vorta doesn't wreck that ass the way I would. <laughs> the The conversation goes so well that Dax afterwards is like, congratulatory. Like, I saw what you tried to do there. I, yeah. think, I think he might actually leave that Vorta for you. 
And guess what? You might have a shot. I'm excited. I'm excited for the potential. We cut directly to the prisoner exchange scene, and this is really fun looking because they're using these super long telescopic lenses to shoot it. It feels very like a North Korea, South Korea border situation, you know? Yeah, and it's like a berm that goes between two pools of water at the bottom of this quarry. and That uh, reflection's nice. Yeah, they're mic'd, so we get like the, uh, you guys okay? Yeah, mm-hmm. you guys okay? <laughs> like, as they pass each other. Yeah. The prisoner exchange goes well, Enterprise. <laughs> you know, like, most of the time when you see a, this style of hostage exchange in movies and television, like, somebody, like, takes a, a left and, like, runs for the water and jumps in or something, and yeah. then everybody starts shooting at each other. Or you cut to the guy on the cliff who's the lone actor. Yeah, the the, yeah. the sniper is somewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, this is a brief scene, but it's... Uh, but uh, but it goes well. It goes very smoothly. Yeah. One thing that does not go smoothly is this protest on DS9 where Kira and Odo have sort of stationed themselves by the temple. They want to see what's going to happen. And uh, Jake is there to kind of interfere by asking his probing questions. Yeah. Uh, the protest ends up being Vedic Yasim hanging herself. Yeah. Very like burning monk vibes with this protest let the hat hit the floor let the hat hit the floor (laughs) Uh, i really loved the slow-mo of of kira running toward it and odo stopping her odo could actually just stop the death of the monk uh, right like he could just extend his... his arms out and and cut the cable before before it goes taut it would seem as though a mr fantastic kind of arm throw could have stopped this thing but uh yeah he did not but i think uh i think by not doing that he gets one problem out of the way medic yasim is not going to be a concern anymore the way they stay on that shot of her feet and the hat as the Mm -hmm. as the piss starts and then and then (laughs) pools at at the bottom underneath her like they stay on that shot for like 30 seconds and like like I I know that like, like there's an amount that you poop normally, right. but like I guess when you get hung, like it's just everything that's in your lower intestine comes out, and, and it's like really surprising like how much that actually is. It's not contained through a pant leg either. When you're a Vedic, you're wearing those the gown, and it yeah. just comes out in kind of a pile. Yeah, and there's so much of it that it takes our underpants with it, and it's just like ugh. That is a mess. Yeah. Like you, you don't try and launder those. You just throw those away. This right? is a carpeted station, so it's especially yeah. awful in that respect. <laughs> They're gonna have to get the steam cleaner. Go rent it at the grocery store. God, and you know how that goes. Like you go get the rug doctor. You gotta like put down a credit card deposit. You somehow get it in your trunk. Get it home, and those things always leak. Like, they yeah. leak more than they clean, Pen. Yeah, and your car's going to smell like the rug doctor stuff for the rest of its existence. <sighs> yeah. It's really bad. <laughs> Thanks, Vedic. <laughs> <laughs> so there's grief uh, from a lot of angles yeah, here. A, is what a we're lot saying. of people have, have, uh, have complaints about the way this went down. More and more. Cisco and Bashir meet Keevan, and Bashir advises surgery immediately, which he does. And I think the way he can tell that Keevan needs surgery right away is that the seam around his ears is showing. 
probably <laughs> the place he's going to start digging his scalpel in first. Yeah, your loaf is coming off. Let me help you with that. Yeah, kind of a tough angle. When he pulls out his uh, his laser scalpel or whatever, the Jem Hadar all like bustle in, and Bashir thinks that they're like kind of trying to like bouncer him, and Kevin's like, no, 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 they just like want to see what I look like on the inside. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I guess none of them have fucked him before. <laughs> So we cut to another scene of uh, Kira starting her day. And this is, uh, you know, if you thought she was in a bad mood the first time we saw this, this is like taking extra long looks at herself in the mirror, taking big heaving sighs when she gets on the elevator full of Jem'Hadar and Cardassians, drinking her Ractagino at Ops and looking around the room and seeing all of these bad dudes. She just flat out ignores Ned Ryerson on her way to the lift. <laughs> From high school. Things don't look right to her at Ops. Things yeah. things look so wrong there that she up and leaves. Yeah. And you can tell this is a workplace without a uh, a manager figure taking a great interest in people because she leaves her station and no one really notices. Yeah, that's actually kind of kind of nice right like that the dominion is not like micromanaging you at your workplace you get the feeling that kira can take as long of a lunch as she wants yeah that's really cool i respect they they extend a lot of trust to her it's a it's one of those workplaces that has unlimited paid time off you know gul dukat may be a war criminal but uh there are also some good things about his managerial style All I'm saying is don't hire me if you have unlimited paid time off at your company. I'm going to take it. (laughs) I think after doing Greatest Gen, we are unsuited and unhirable forevermore in in any kind of square job. I honestly think about that a lot, like how fucked we are. (laughs) It's over for us. Yeah. We've made the commitment. We have painted ourselves into an extremely stupid corner, Adam. (laughs) Yep. So the surgery is a... is a success. The Vorda's ear has been reattached. Uh, <laughs> Bashir is like kind of gloating in that Bashir kind of way. He's great. He's great yeah. in this episode. I'm the doctor here. The Jem Hadar are dismissed because Kivan needs to have a conversation with Bashir and Cisco about the state of the white. Yeah. And he opens his, his uh, chest O white and shows that there is a single vial left. So the Jem'Hadar are basically a ticking time bomb. And, you know, like, obviously the Dominion is going to take this as a learning opportunity. If Keevan can get back to the Dominion, he's going to propose putting a a pick-and-pull foam lining in the white cases that they take into the field going forward. But uh, for now, uh, they do have a Jem'Hadar problem, uh, and, and it's really all of their problem. You know, you, you crack a lens once using a non-Pelican pick-and-pull case. Uh, that's the only <laughs> time it ever happens in your career. You switch yeah. to foam pretty fast. Yeah, you got, you got to get that good stuff. Um, and so, yeah, what he proposes is, I'm going to tell the Jem'Hadar to attack you in a particular way. I'm going to tell you how that attack is going down so that you can get the drop on them and take them out because you know you're outnumbered. But you know we're all fucked if they run out of white. So take it or leave it. Like, they're attacking one way or another. If you agree, I will tell you how they're attacking. And there is some lip service paid to, like, I can't believe you're betraying your men this way. But it's not like Cisco or Bashir can do anything about this. The dimensionality of the Vorda is such that 
you are surprised, but not totally surprised, at this turn in him. You yeah. get the sense that any Vorta would say or do whatever they could to survive. Right, and it's like very hard for Cisco and Bashir to wrap their minds around the way the Vorta thinks about the Jem'Hadar as expendable, because in the Federation, nobody's expendable. Nobody's treated that way. In the Federation, if you don't show up to a party you've been invited to, people care a lot about that. Yeah, it matters. Yeah. It really matters. This is pretty dark stuff, and I really love where it puts the stress, because Keevan having told Cisco this plan puts the ball in his court. He knows all of this stuff. It's up to Cisco to actually do the killing now. Yeah. And there isn't a lot of debate in if the argument is kill or be killed, right? I think right. you always end up on the side of kill. Yeah. I thought that the blocking of the scene where Cisco shows them how the attack is going to go down was a little bit strange. Because Cisco's like pretty far across the room from a lot of them and like facing away from a lot of them and is drawing on the sand and like Nog is in the background going like, this seems like a bad thing to do. <laughs> yeah, in real life, everyone but Cisco looks like they're slagging him off for this yeah. plan. Yeah, and Cisco's like reclined on the floor like he's like at a Roman feast or something. Should Keevan's proposal work out the way he says... He's going to give them his broken communications array, and then they're all going to be rescued, and Keevan's going to be put in a cozy, white-collar Federation prison. Like, that's the yeah. outcome that he is angling for here. Keevan is going for a nice, comfortable uh, way to live out the war. I see we understand each other. So Odo catches up with Kira up on the second floor of the promenade, right where Vedic Yassim... Uh, took her own life and uh she has pulled her com badge off she's tied a tiny noose around her com badge <laughs> ready to put it over the side <laughs> uh she feels complicit she you know like is talking about like what her position on people like her would have been you know when she was in the resistance mm -hmm. the fact that she's now a collaborator in her own mind. I wonder if the show regrets killing off her resistance friends at this moment in time. Because, wow, could you imagine the sort of conflict that would be for her to interact with them again? Yeah. I mean, her life is super different from theirs. They're all in a position to walk away from their dirt farms and re restart their lives as resistance fighters. And she is a part of the system now. In and the absence of those resistance fighters, Nana Visitor has to demonstrate this conflict all on her own. And luckily, she's very capable of that in this scene. Yeah. And Odo is trying to take the position of, like, you're not complicit. Like, you're doing the right thing to, like, preserve the most lives and, and like, get through this situation. And she basically puts him in a position of, like, pick me or, or pick law and order. But, mm -hmm. like, I'm going to start resisting. And uh, spoiler alert, Odo does not have a bit a very hard time picking Kira as the person he is most loyal to. Odo does do that thing here that kind of made me roll my eyes, which is Kira is like confiding in him big time, all of these tortured feelings. And Odo's like, you think that's bad? Guess what I'm going through? 
<laughs> in a way that's just kind of unwelcome when you're trying to share your pain with a friend, you know? Yeah, Odo's like, a really nice coffee shop, one of many in my neighborhood is closing down for a little while. Imagine how I feel. <laughs> awesome. So the Jem'Hadar uh, begin their attack. They are working their way across the same uh, field as uh, as the Starfleets were when they got attacked earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Starfleets are all up there with their phaser rifles ready to go. <laughs> this all get into a bunch attack formation uh, does not look strategically <laughs> sound, Enterprise. No. Uh, and uh, Remediclon... Uh, is surprised to hear Cisco calling out to him. Cisco uh, suggests that they have a little a little parlay before they get the the fun and games going, and so uh, Remediclon agrees to this. Uh, Cisco Cisco comes down and uh, has a face to face with uh, with this Jem'Hadar third. He's got terms, and these terms aren't irrelevant. He knows that the situation is hopeless on the Jem'Hadar side, and Remediclan isn't even sure he has the authority to negotiate at this point. He's really sticking to the chain of command way of thinking that he's always had. Yeah, it's really interesting. Remediclan is a slave mm-hmm. who believes in slavery. Like he, he's like like Cisco says, "This Vorda betrayed you. He told me how to kill you." And Remediclon is like, that's his prerogative, man. Like, that's the chain of command that I live in. And, I, like, if if he wants to send me to my certain death, he has every right in the world to do that. At this point in the episode, it is very clear that we are being presented two sides of a possible resistance. We get the Kira character grappling with how much resistance she can muster and Remediclon doing the same here. Yeah. They're, they're sort of thinking in parallel. The amount of resistance that Remediclon can muster is zero. Right. <laughs> because uh, this turns into a great big firefight. It's a slaughter. Paul Gordon gets killed, but we didn't really know Paul Gordon yeah. before he died. And we don't need his radishes. Boy, uh, Jay is going to be pretty bummed out, though. Yeah. Poor guy. You know, it'll probably be a decade before he gets news of his father's death, so (laughs) he'll be fine. That's true. So this is a really savage fight scene. A lot of great slow-mo. Like, a a number of phaser fire shots that would have put a TNG episode out of budget, right? Yeah. What you get is a lot of expressions from the Starfleets here. Like, they know... They're slaughtering these guys. You get the sense by the looks on their faces that they aren't happy to do this. Garrick looks like yeah. pretty chuffed, but but Nog looks particularly disgusted with what happened yeah, here. Yeah, there is a fair amount of, of tortured feelings, I think, in this scene. And then Keevan comes out and he's like, cool, thanks. Uh, great doing business with you. Uh, just FYI, if I'd had any more white, uh, this would have gone the opposite way, and you'd all be dead right now. So, uh, you know, try not to feel too bad about what happened here. Hooray for me, says Keevan. And we get sort of double scowls to credits to end the episode. Did you like the episode, Adam? You really want to do this here now? Okay, okay, let's do it, do it. 
I think this is one of the stronger eps I can remember seeing on DS9. It was totally relentless in terms of its pacing. It seemed like even in the quiet moments, something heavy was happening. Yeah. Uh, And I really liked it for that reason. It really felt mature as just an episode of dramatic television, but also as an episode of Star Trek. It really feels like one of the good ones. What about you? I agree. I mean, I think that it, like the characters feel really three-dimensional and lived in and the world that they're inhabiting feels really real. Like I think Jake especially is very interesting in this episode in a way that he often isn't. Yeah. And yeah, I think uh I think it's a very strong episode and and an interesting an interesting bottle in a larger story arc. Yeah, bottle in the case. Yeah. Do you want to uh, see if we have any Priority One messages, my friend? Plenty of bottles in that case, Ben. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Need a supplemental income. Supplemental income? Supplemental. Supplemental. Yeah, it's extra. But the interest alone could be enough to buy this ship. Adam, our first Priority One message is of a commercial nature. Not bad. And uh, it goes like this. Greetings, DeSoto friends. You enjoy adventure, space, and excitement, right? Sure you do. So why not check out the newest Bob the Angry Flower cartoon book, Bob the Angry Flower, Exciting Space Adventure. It's got Daleks. It's got Excalbians. It's got Tralfamadorians. It's got it all. Find it at angryflower.com or order it directly at Amazon. It's in space you know the creator of bob the angry flower actually gave us a couple of his books yeah we met him at a max fun drive meetup in seattle right we sure did yeah yeah and i'm uh, i just went to go grab the book i still have it it's great nice um yeah so check out bob the angry flower at angryflower.com and uh he puts up uh, he puts up like short comics on angryflower.com as well. He's a, it's a real fun art style. It's far more popular than my comic strip, Bob the Angry Flower, spelled F-L-O-U-R. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, just, it's just a sack of flour that is being carried around by you in high school. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, it's my flower baby. Yeah. Ben, our second priority one message is from the Las Vegas Klingon and it is for Ben, Adam, Rob, and Bill. I think I think we can assume that that's Rob Schulte, producer of Friendly Fire and Greatest Discovery, and also a friend of the show, Card Daddy Bill Tilly. Message goes like this. Since STLV, I've wanted to drop some scarves as an apology for not letting you enjoy your dang burgers in peace. However, I just didn't seem sufficient to the level of embarrassment. More than a little. Your stories from episode 296 were what finally inspired me. So if you haven't gotten the donation thank you cards by now, I hope you do soon. <laughs> I don't I don't even remember what we talked about on this episode, much less episode 296. I don't remember uh, that, and I also don't remember being bothered during burgers, but I mean in our defense, Ben, we were mostly hoof drunk 
during yeah. our time in Las Vegas. So no harm, we no foul. We drunk. I would say to the Las Vegas Klingon. It's all good. I think our goal is to just go do a day at STLV every year going forward if we can if we can swing it. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I, I think the standing rule to uh, the Las Vegas Klingon and anyone else is uh, like by all means come say hi to us come say hi don't worry about it it's fun for us come uh, come party with us at our pool cabana yeah for sure uh, so the uh, so the way to get a priority one message whether it is a, of a commercial or a personal nature is to head to maximumfun.org slash jumbotron and it's a hundred bucks for a personal message and 200 for a commercial message hey Adam what's that Ben did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Drunk Shimoda! This was a really hard one to select in an episode full of uh, serious people doing serious work. I kind of feel like Bashir was the one out- outlier. He <laughs> he was in it for his own glory. Uh, another successful surgery done. Uh, he just sort of like claps his hands together completely independent of the horror show happening around him (laughs) he doesn't seem to participate in the violence or in the danger in a way that everyone else does right and he just sort of keeps his own self-contained story and attitude about things and uh, yeah he's he's like a corpsman where he's like not actually doing anything with the guns yeah uh it seems as though he's just kind of above it all in a very shimoda kind of way so that's why i'm gonna make him the shimoda for this episode what about you you know i uh i have mixed feelings about this because of some of what we talked about but i kind of give it to jake Uh for that first scene where he's talking to kira and odo there is a version of jake is doing this to to like knock some sense into kira and odo but uh, he is also antagonizing like the only two people on the station who can help him <laughs> if uh, if things get any worse. Yeah, <laughs> why is he doing that? That seems dumb. Yeah, so so for that reason, he gets my drunk Shimoda. Hmm. You might have heard us talk about Squarespace before, and you're thinking, what do I need a website for? I already have a bunch of profiles across the different social medias. But isn't it time you had a place online that wasn't owned by a social media company? How about you take control of your online identity with a website of your own? For that, there's Squarespace. With Squarespace, you can buy a URL and build a customized website with your name, and not a giant social media company's name, with your name attached and a bunch of numbers at the end. With Squarespace, you can have a place on the internet personalized to your aesthetic that lets you tell people about who you are instead of an algorithm. And the best part is, you don't have to be an experienced designer or a web page creator to make something great because Squarespace is always there for you with their award-winning 24x7 customer support. Don't settle for being another company's product. Be your own product with a website that's all you with Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code SCARVES to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com. The code is SCARVES. Think it. Dream it. Make it with Squarespace. 
Boy, do I love a microdose gummy from Lumi Labs. I'm, uh, I'm running low, so I'm going to head over to microdose.com pretty soon and put in another order. Microdosing is a technique I use to steer my mentals in a preferred direction several times a week. And uh, I just love it because you can really predict what is going to happen and to what degree it is going to happen because these are very low-dose cannabis gummies that uh, give you an entry-level dose that help you feel just the right amount of good. And they've been super loyal as sponsors to Greatest Trek and Greatest Gen, so I hope you will give them a try. Get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code SCARVES. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code is SCARVES for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code SCARVES. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. All right, Ben, what do we have coming up on the next episode of The Greatest Generation Deep Space Nine and how, pray tell, will we be watching it? The next episode of Deep Space Nine is season six, episode three, Sons and Daughters. Worf must face his failures as a father when his estranged son volunteers for duty aboard a Klingon ship. What? We're, we're yeah. going to get an Alexander episode? We're going to get an Alexander motherfucking episode. I got to tell you, uh, I had forgotten about that character completely. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, boy, is he going to be pissed when he asks about Kern. <laughs> hey, uh, so how's Uncle Kern, father? Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> about that guy. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to head over to the Game of Buttholes, The Will of the Prophets where our runabout is on square 47. Uh, just ahead, there is a space butthole that could take us down to a fuck it, we'll do it live. And uh, I think that's the only 
hazard that we can potentially hit on this roll. You're required to learn as you play. Roll. Uh, but I'm gonna go ahead and roll it. What do you say? Roll that bone. Wow, I've rolled a six. Chula! Did I win? Hardly. So we're on square 53, and uh, just shy of a quirks bar, and uh, uh, off in the distance is a looking at each other during. That, that seems like it's going to be in our future a lot more often anyway. Yeah, that'll be uh, less less airplane travel <laughs> associated with that. The stakes will be low. enough. Well... Can't wait to do that with you, buddy. Uh, in the meantime, we got to thank all the friends of DeSoto who go to MaximumFun.org slash join and support the show on a monthly basis. Uh, as little as five bucks a month will get you access to all of our bonus content, and we really appreciate the folks that do that because this is our job and we have rent and stuff. We're committed to the idea in an irresponsible way now. Yeah. It's over for us as normal people. We got to thank Bill Tilly, our card daddy, who makes uh, hilarious trading cards about this show and now The Greatest Discovery. And he's putting those up using the hashtag GreatestGen on Twitter, where he's at BillTilly1973. I'm at BenjaminAHR, and Adam is at CutForTime. Got to thank Adam Ragusia for his work on the music you hear on the show. He is the creator of our interstitial music. Our main title theme, of course, was made by Dark Materia. If you'd like to connect with the Friends of DeSoto, you know where to do it. You go to the Facebook group. There's a Reddit sub. There are uh, Discord groups, and there's a Wikia. There's all kinds of stuff going on out there. Friends of DeSoto are really cool and fun people to hang out with. Yeah, there's a subgroup for just about every interest. And uh, shout out to my uh, to my Jim Shimoda friends out there uh, out there pumping their iron. Yeah, shout out to my favorite. Uh, shout out to my greatest exo cooks out there. Yeah, you gotta make a, uh, a greatest exo cooks shirt with uh, a chef's hat on top of Jim Shimoda. Oh yeah, we there's actually a design for that because we were both given uh, aprons with with a logo for that. Hey, if you're an exo cook, uh, shoot an email to the drunk Shimoda at Gmail uh, inbox, and maybe we can get an official T-shirt going in the in the store. It's a great idea. Well, uh, is that about it, Ben? I think that I think that just about does it. All right. Well, with that, we'll be back at you next time with. Another great episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and an episode of The Greatest Generation Deep Space Nine that brings back a forgotten and beloved character? (laughs) Beloved? Maybe? Alexander's gonna gonna want to go to Quarks, get himself some passes to the Hollow Suites, take himself <laughs> another mud bath. <laughs> That's what he's gonna do. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.